Tonight we're continuing our big question series. Uh, the question still is this, why can't we just agree that love is love? This is the second part. Last time we looked at the three lies that we often hear about love and sexuality. Um, we hear, listen to your heart, but we saw instead we should listen to God and listen to what his word says. We often hear, let this define you, let your sexuality define you, but instead we should let God define us. And third, we heard love is love, but we need to really understand that the Bible says God is love, and that's actually true and meaningful. Now, we talked about those three things last time, and so now hopefully we can kind of more clearly see what the truth is that the Bible has for us. So tonight is the truth we need when it comes to love and sexuality and marriage. So let me read for us God's word. I'm asking if you do something. Would you stand up as I read God's word, just as a respect for what we're reading? I'm going to read the first three passages on your scripture sheets. There's more over there on the table if you need one. But I'm going to read Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and Genesis 2, 24 through 25. This is God's word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. Let me pray for us. Father, would you help us to listen to your word tonight? Because you know how life works best. You know what's best for us. Would you give us ears to hear what it is that your word says? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. So tonight, right, to open up, we played that game with the levels and rock, paper, scissors, right? And in that game, you had to move from level to level to level, right? Now, if you just stayed the whole time at level one, that wouldn't do you any good. You needed to move up in order to win the game, right? Now, when it comes to love and sexuality, oftentimes people all stay in one single level. And they say, well... You know, either they say, well, sexuality is just a bodily desire. It's just something you feel, so then you go after it, you do it, all that sort of thing. Sometimes people just stay at the level of sexuality is bad. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it. Don't even have conversations about it, right? And sometimes we also stay on the level of the Bible says this about sexuality, right? Now, that's an important thing to say, what the Bible says. But it's also helpful to dig down level by level and see why the Bible says what it says. So, tonight we're actually going to go through levels. We're not going to stay on the surface, but we're actually going to go level by level. So, I think God's word for tonight offers us three levels when it comes to the purpose of sex and also the purpose of marriage. And you'll see them up here written for you. Sex creates life, it unites life, and it gives life. So, we start at the surface level. Sex creates life. That might sound something like obvious to many of you, but sex is where human beings come from. This is something you'll learn if you haven't already, Right? But look at the first chapter of Genesis. We read it already, a part of it. Look especially at verse 27. What does verse 27 say? It says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what do we read there? Well, it means God created us, like him, in his image, to reflect him in this world. Not to be God, but to show what he's like to the world. And he created us, as we see, male and female. Now, then in verse 28, what is the first thing he tells Adam and Eve to do? Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. 
Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, that's a lot of commands all in one. But look at the first three. Be fruitful and multiply, right? That's two right there. And fill the earth. So how do they actually fulfill these commands that God gives them? Well, by having children, right? That's the way to fulfill these first commands that God has for them. Oftentimes when we talk about sexuality, we think of it for anything except having children. But the thing is, that is a part of sex that we can't just take away or not think about. That's actually supposed to be there. It's present. Okay? Malachi puts it this way. It's the second verse you have on that, on that passage, or the second passage you have on the scripture sheet. Malachi 2.15 says, Did he, that's God, not make them one with a portion of a spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Right? So it's kind of a repeat. One of the things that God is seeking, the purpose of marriage and sex within marriage, is to have kids, is to have godly offspring. Now, as we'll see, that's not the only purpose of marriage and sexuality, but it's an important one that we can't, think of, we can't talk about this without addressing it. So that's that first point, sex creates life. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have been on the internet like me, and so you'll see lists of things that you're using wrong, right? Top 10 things in your house, household items that you're using incorrectly, right? And they try to say, well, you're using a clothespin this way, but you should use it that way, right? It's all these strange little ticky-tack items that we have, and it really doesn't matter if we're using them this way or that way. But the thing is, sex isn't like that. Right? Imagine using your phone or your laptop or something really valuable in the wrong way. Right? Maybe you're saying, oh yeah, I'll just put some water on my laptop, no big deal. Right? That's a problem that causes damage, there are consequences. It's the same thing. Sex is important and valuable, but that means it can't be used in any way we want it to. That means there are boundaries that have to be put on it. So that also means uh, that we should only have sex in a relationship where sex can create life. Right? Does that make sense? So the right relationship would be marriage, because specifically a marriage between a man and a woman. Think about it this way, right? If sex creating life is part of it, and we can't take that away, then we have to have it in the context where that's an okay thing to have happen. And the best place for that, and the place it's made for that, is marriage. And this also means that one of the reasons for marriage, amongst others, one of the reasons is to have kids. Now, that can be really hard, because there's some people who can't have kids and want to, and that's a really sad thing and that's a hard thing. It's a really hard thing. But we see that one of the levels that we have to talk about is that sex creates life. Now then we go to the next level. Sex unites life. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, look at that third passage on your sheet. Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay. When people get married, according to this passage, they become one. It says one flesh. That means physically, emotionally, and spiritually, they're united together. That's a pretty big and powerful thing, right? And that oneness is also oneness where they're safe with one another. They're safe to be vulnerable. They're safe to be not ashamed. Look at what that second verse says, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, marriage, right, is oneness. But you know, in the Bible, God also refers to himself as one, which is really interesting. You have that Deuteronomy passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we know that God reveals himself in the Bible to be one and yet three. It's the Trinity, right? Three persons and one God. So just like the Trinity is three in one, marriage is meant to be two in one. Two persons in one flesh unity together. Look back again at that Malachi passage and see the word one. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. <coughs> So two people, united in marriage, spiritually, emotionally, and yes, physically and sexually, 
right, are meant to show the oneness that God has. And this is why Jesus speaks the way he does about marriage in Matthew 19, 3 through 6. You also have that on your scripture sheet. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, so we read that passage, and Jesus is talking to some of the Pharisees, right? And he quotes some of the verses we've already seen tonight, right? He quotes Genesis 1. He also quotes Genesis 2, in a sense, right? And so he's quoting those, and he's saying marriage is a uniting of two people. And just like God, as we saw, was three in one, marriage is two in one, and marriage should not be separated, right? What, what does he say? What God has put together, let no, not man separate. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so that means sex and marriage is uniting two people together. It's uniting them in a very specific way that you don't get anywhere else. Right? Think about mixing two things together. Oftentimes we mix things together, you know, that we could easily take apart, you know, like golf balls and sand or things like that, right? But think about a chemical reaction where you put two things in that are different and they make something new entirely and you can't just undo that, right? It's not something you can undo by hand. That's not going to work. And that's the idea here, that two in marriage become one in this very specific way, which involves sexuality. And so whether we know it or not, sex is actually uniting us to someone else, which is really hard to think about, right? Sometimes we think about it as just physical. It doesn't have to have any emotion thing, emotions attached to it. But actually, the way we're wired and the way we're made, sex unites life. Now, like, we, like we've said, we tend to think about it not that way. Right? What the world often says, or what we hear is, well, the more sexual partners you have and the more sex you have with them, the happier you are. That's just what a lot of people tend to believe. That's what a lot of people tend to think. But actually, the opposite's true. Statistically speaking, more sexual partners actually leads to more sadness, anxiety, depression, and addiction. And maybe you don't have more sexual partners, but maybe you use online pornography. That leads to all those same outcomes as well. In fact, studies consistently show this that the, the number of people, the people who are most sexually satisfied and, and fulfilled in that are married, Bible-believing, church-going Christians. It sounds, it sounds shocking, right? It sounds like nothing you've ever heard before. It sounds like that can't be the case, but it's true. And why is it the case? Because they're using it in the context in which it was intended. This makes sense because marriage puts us, like we saw with Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. Some people have talked about sex like a fire because a fire oftentimes is really good. It can provide warmth, it can provide light, it can provide heat, you can cook s'mores on it, right? It's great, but it needs a boundary. If you take it outside of the fire pit, if you take it outside of the boundary that it's in, it can become destructive, it can get out of control. And so it's a really good thing, but it needs boundaries to continue to be that good thing. So what does it mean for us that sex unites life? Well, it means that when people have sex, they're uniting their lives together, whether they know it or not. That's what they're doing. And so that uniting is designed specifically by God for marriage. Now, people oftentimes are not committed to a full unity, but that's what sex is meant for in the purpose of marriage, where you're emotionally united and spiritually united and committed together for the long term. That's what it's for. But 
it's also helpful to know that there are other kind of relationships that we have that are uniting. Maybe not to the level, but there are other things. We have friendships, we have family, and those are good and helpful things, right? And we don't want to ruin any of those things by introducing the element of sexuality. It's not meant to be there. It only works, and it works well, and it works best in the context of a marriage. So sex unites life. But third, and the final level, sex gives life. Well, what do I mean by that? Look at that 1 Corinthians 7 passage we have. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now that sounds really strange for us to read for a lot of different reasons. First, right, we think about this. Okay, the husband, neither the husband nor the wife have control over their own bodies. That seems kind of strange. That sounds strange to us today, but it also would have sounded strange when it was originally written, right? It would have sounded strange way back then because back then everybody would say, oh yeah, you know, a husband does have control of his wife. That makes sense. But then they would read the next verse. The, wife does, or the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And they would say, whoa, no, 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 no. that's not what we want. Right? That's, not what, that's not what makes sense here. But now today when we read that passage, we think about somebody else having control of us, and that seems so weird. It seems so like not the way we're going to do it. Right? Everybody's like, oh, I'm in control of myself, and you're in control of yourself, and you do what you want, and I do what I want. Right? But that's not the picture the Bible gives. The Bible says something different. Right? The husband and a wife are actually giving themselves to one another in love. That's what they're doing. It's a self-giving. We see this again in Ephesians 5. It's a longer passage on the back of your sheet. Okay? In this passage, it's instructions for marriage and given to both wives and husbands. Now, there are different instructions given to wives and husbands, but I want you to note that both of the instructions involve giving to one another. Not taking from one another, but giving to one another. So let me read me, verses 22 through 28. And I want you to listen for giving language. What's, be, what's being given? It can be easy to say, well, this is what wives have to do and this is what husbands have to do. But this is, this is what is being given. So listen for that language. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Okay, there's a lot packed in there, right? But notice, there's a lot of giving language, right? They're giving themselves to one another. And then it ends this way, verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, so love and marriage, and in marital love, sex and sexuality, isn't something you take. It's not something meant to be taken for yourself. It's actually something that's meant to be given. And the model of that comes from Christ and his love for the church. It says there, right, we, that quote in verse 31, it's, the, it's a passage we've been hearing over and over again, that Genesis 2 passage. And then verse 32, this mystery, the mystery of marriage, refers to Christ and the church. Well, how does that make sense? What, what is the love that Christ has for the church? What is the love that the church has for Christ? 
You see, Jesus is the model for all self-giving love that we have. Think about this. Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, submitted himself to the will of his Father to come and save the people of the church. He did it willingly. He gave of himself in that way. And then he did come, and he gave himself up to death, even death on the cross, because he knew it was the only way to save the church. Right? He gave himself for us. And this giving, right, is true love. And so marriage and sexuality in marriage is actually meant to model that kind of love, the model of Christ and the church. And this is true love, not a love of taking, but a love of giving. And this love of Jesus is not just good news when it comes to sexuality. It's good news for all of us who have sinned. Now, maybe we've sinned in this area. Maybe we've done things we aren't proud of, right? Maybe we've done things that aren't right and aren't good, and that's really hard, and we think, well, I'm going to be unlovely, right? I'm going to be blemished. I'm going to be used up. Nobody's ever going to want me anymore. Or maybe we have other sins that we think, same thing. Why would God want me? Why would he love me, right? But I want to read this, this again, verse 25 and 27 in Ephesians. Look again at these verses, what it says about Jesus. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What that means is, if you are a part of the church, then Christ loves you, Christ gave himself for you, and he's cleansed you. He's presenting you to God without spot or without wrinkle or any such thing, that you're actually holy and without blemish, not because of anything you've done, Not because of anything I've done, but because of what Christ has done in giving himself. That your sins are forgiven in Jesus because he loved you. And he loved you enough to die for you. So Jesus gave himself to us, his church. And one of the things we do then is we reflect that life-giving love in marriage. And in marriage, sexuality. So, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you, right? That means about sexuality and sex is not about taking what you want as long as somebody says it's okay. No, it's actually giving and giving to one person in a unity, right? And that's in marriage. Now, you, a lot of you are not married now, right? Only the leaders in this room potentially are married. Well, if you're not married now, but you will be, think about your body even now as your spouses, right? Because it's God that has, has given himself for you, right? But then... So this is somebody else's body. It's not your own to do with what you will. You're not taking this. And the same thing for somebody else's body, if you're not married to them. It's not your body to take, right? Now, maybe you won't be married, but the good news is, if you're not married, you don't miss out on the real life-giving, self-giving love. Also, the Bible actually talks about single as being better, believe it or not. Right? That's what Paul says. But think about this. If marriage is only a model of the love that Jesus has for his church, if you're not married, and even if you will never be married, you still get the actual real love of Christ in the church. You still get that, right? Marriage is only a model of that in this way. And just because you don't get the model, you still have the real thing, which is the important thing. Now, this also means when we think about sexuality, right, That means in marriage, we're representing Christ and the church, which in this passage is male and female, which means marriage should be Christ and the church, man and woman. Not Christ and Christ, not a church and church, but actually Christ and his church. That's what we're meant to reflect. That's the way we're made. 
That's the relationship that has capacity for children. And that's a love of difference and self-giving that's hard, but it's actually what we're made to do and meant to do. Now, whether you're married or unmarried, marriage is not the only relationship you're supposed to have in this life. It's a very specific one with a specific purpose, but that means we need to have friendships outside of marriage, friendships in the church, right? The love that Christ has for the church <clears throat> leads us to love one another, right? There are specific ways we love, right, and giving one another in marriage, but there are, there's love of friendship, there's love of family, there's all those things that are important for a healthy, flourishing life for all of us. Now, sex, we saw the third level, sex gives life. So we've seen that sex isn't for taking. And here's the thing. The world is constantly telling us that's what it's for. It's just a bodily desire. Whatever you want to do, just go after it and just take it. <clears throat> as long as somebody lets you do this, right, this is what we call consent, as long as somebody lets you do this, that's fine. But that's what we've seen that's actually not true. That's not what we were made for. That's not what we were meant for. We've seen that sex creates life. Sex unites life, and sex gives life. And that works best and only in marriage. And marriage, and sex in marriage, is a model of God's great love for us in Jesus, that love of giving, not that love of taking. I want to close with some words that aren't mine, but I think they're very profound in talking about this topic. So Rebecca McLaughlin is a writer, and she, she's a Christian writer, and she's written a lot on this topic because she has unwanted desires in this area that she continues to not pursue. And so she writes about this, and it's, it's very meaningful for her. It has a lot, she has a lot writing on these things. And she says this, I write because I believe in a greater truth than my small mind can fathom, a deeper desire than my weak heart can muster, and a closer relationship than the best human marriage can ever attain. doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter if we ever get married. If we are believers, Christ has loved us with this sacrificial giving love. And we are made pure and holy before the living God by what he's done. And so we honor him in the way we conduct relationships with one another, both in marriage with sexuality, but also outside of marriage with friendships and with time spent together. 1 John 4 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. God has loved us in that self-giving love through Jesus coming and dying for us. And so then we honor him and honor that love by the way we pursue life on our own, the way we pursue love. And we do it according to his word because that's the way we're meant to do it. That's the way life works best. And we want to honor the one who has loved us and given himself for us. Let's pray. Father, would you continue to impress on our hearts the fact that Jesus came for us, that Jesus loved us. Even when we didn't love him, he loved us. He cared about us. He wanted us to be his. And he has come and sacrificed himself so that we might be with you eternally. Lord, would this love, this love of Christ, influence the way we live, influence the way we talk, influence our relationships? Lord, would you help us to see the way you've created us and the way you've created sexuality and to pursue things in a way that honor you and the way that honor the way you've made us? Lord, it's hard. There's a lot of things in the world, a lot of things we're told. Lord, would you help us to remain faithful in hard times? And would you help us to know that our sins are forgiven? and that we can live a new life in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.